Welcome to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. I'm Robert Holliman, a partner in the law firm and president and CEO of Kroll & Mooring International, our firm's global public policy, public affairs, and market access affiliate. I'm joined by my colleague, Nicole Simonian. I'm delighted to be with you today. I'm Nicole Simonian, a law partner in the Los Angeles office of Quill and & Mooring and co-lead our global international trade practice, as well as lead our international employment global mobility practice. Trade Talks is a podcast that shares brief perspectives on key global issues in international trade, current events, business, law, and public policy as they impact our lives. Let me turn this back to Ambassador Holliman, who will introduce our guest. Today, we are joined by my good friend, Fred Hochberg. Fred served as the chairman of the Export-Import Bank of the United States in the Obama-Biden administration from 2009 to 2017. He was the longest-serving chairman in the agency's history. Previously, Fred served for five years as dean at the New School in New York City and has been a fellow at the Institutes of Politics at both Harvard Kennedy School, where I was pleased to be his guest, and the University of Chicago. In the Clinton administration, Fred served as acting administrator of the Small Business Administration. And before entering public service, he spent almost two decades leading his family's direct marketing business, Lilly and Vernon, where he oversaw a 40-fold increase in revenue. Fred's the author of a super book that was released earlier this year by a division of Simon & Schuster entitled, Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word. We'll be talking about this and other things today. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. Good to be with you today. Thank you, Fred. You served as chairman of the Export-Import Bank of the United States from 2009 to 2017. Can you tell us a little bit about the XM Bank and how did your service impact your perspectives on international trade? It profoundly impacted it. One, you know, I think I entered that position, and I think many Americans have the belief that we stop making things. We don't make things in this country anymore. If you look at the clothing we're wearing, cars that people drive, the fruits and vegetables we pick up at the grocery store, you can have a sense that we import everything. But the fact is, we are a major manufacturing powerhouse. At the beginning of the century, we were the largest exporter of goods. We slipped behind Germany and China. Now we're actually back to number two behind China. So one was that we actually do make a lot of things, and it's everything from airplanes to farm equipment to power equipment. And really importantly, which often gets overlooked, and I talk about in the book, is services. You know, we're a service economy, and that's a huge part of our economy and also the kind of things that we export to the rest of the world. So that was one thing. And the other thing I would also add is the mood about trade got more and more sour and dark over those eight years. And that disturbed me. And that's really what prompted me to write the book was like, wait, how did trade get to be such a bad idea? So those are kind of two quick takeaways. So Fred, your book has a very provocative title, Trade is not a four-letter word, and you've said that you never intended to write a book and certainly not one about trade. So tell us some of the insights you wanted to share in that book as they were both impacted by your service as chairman of the Export-Import Bank, but also what you've seen in the business sector as well. 
Well, I came up with the title, actually, because I was, as you mentioned, and Robert was one of my guests up at Harvard, and that is you teach a course, a seminar for college students. And I had to say, all right, how am I going to get college students to take a non-credit seminar in the middle of their busy day and find it interesting? And resetting America's trade agenda in the 21st century would put everybody to sleep. The history of the Export-Import Bank would put the rest of the group to sleep. So I had to think about what I reflected on in my time serving under President Obama, where obviously how Robert, you and I know each other, and think about just how trade got to be something so negative, something we should avoid, something that shouldn't be celebrated. So that's what led me to the book, led me to teaching the course. I learned a lot from our guest speakers, Robert being one of them, and, and my students. And the fact is that trade is, one, much more complicated. Two, trade debates have been at the center of our country's debates since the founding of our country. In fact, the very first act of Congress was a tariff because we had to raise revenue to pay for the Revolutionary War. So these issues around trade are nothing new. We've been wrestling with them for over 200, 240 years, and we're probably going to be wrestling with them for a long time in the future as well. So having helped chart a path to both get people interested, both your students, but more broadly about thinking about trade and maybe demystifying some of the aspects of it through this book, through talking about this book. As you talk to both readers or larger audiences about the book, your thesis behind the book, have you had any surprises or sort of takeaways that people might have either told you anecdotally or shared in a group of how this is being received and whether or not it's sort of resonating with audiences? Well, you know, there's a hotel when I visit Washington, I stay in and I, you, know, you get to know people when you stay in a hotel on a regular basis. And one of the doormen said to me, I got a hold of your book, which I was obviously very flattered. And he said, I read the chapter on Game of Thrones. And my God, I, I think about that TV show entirely differently today. So those are the, some of the good surprises. The fact is that one of the chapters I devote to in the book is the most American car on the road. And in 2018, it was the Honda Odyssey, not a Chevy, not a Ford, not a Chrysler. And the fact that trade has totally upended how we think about trade, how, and frankly, has improved our cars. The fact is cars now run for 100,000 miles or more. And trade had a lot to do with that because it's spurred American companies to manufacture and produce better cars and brought a lot of manufacturing here. So I think those are some of the surprises. In fact, it was such a surprise, I would tell you, the Honda Odyssey is about 75% made in America, designed, made, engineered here. The Ford 150 pickup truck, which people think of as the iconic American vehicle, is about 50-55% U.S. made. So some of those things, I think, were most surprising to readers and made them sort of think about things very differently. That's great. It also really strikes me that it's getting to people to think about this in a different way. And if it was a textbook on trade policy, they probably wouldn't be read. But this is a great way of getting, getting to the audience. Nicole, I'll turn it back to you. Sure. Thank you. And speaking of getting to the audience, I would love to hear, looking at your direct experience for both government and business, how do you think U.S. businesses should be thinking about trade in terms of their bottom line opportunity and risk? And just to follow that, 
what would you think the U.S. government should be doing about international trade? Well, Nicole, I think one of the things that this pandemic, the COVID-19, has all has changed people's understanding of what the devil a supply chain is. I go to some length in the book to the Honda Odyssey and the iPhone to explain how a supply chain works. One thing I would tell you, as a result of this pandemic, that isn't necessary. People have already heard about supply chains, how it's impacted personal protective equipment or PPE, ventilators, medication. So I think that there's a better sense of what a supply chain is. There's a greater insistence that companies be responsible in terms of it being both resilient and safe, that you cannot rely, get all your supplies from one place or one country. You may recall the time a lot of the generic pharmaceuticals in our country were made in Puerto Rico. There were tax incentives for Puerto Rico. Well, and the tax incentives disappeared and a lot of that industry went away. But even today, if we were getting everything from Puerto Rico, the danger would be Florida got some devastating hurricanes and storms, knocked out a lot of their power and capacity. So thinking about a resilient supply chain, and the problem with that's going to be, it may be a slightly more costly supply chain. And we give a lot of lip service and, oh, yes, of course, I'd spend more for that. But when it comes down to it, people don't often want to spend more from that. They think that's the right thing to say, but whether they'll actually do it is something different. But I think that businesses will have to have a more diversified and a more resilient supply chain. And that's a difference that companies will be looking at. And on the government side, one thing President Obama and Secretary Pritzker championed was Select USA, that this is a good place to set up business. So trying to attract what people call foreign direct investment or FDI into the U.S. A Pew report recently came out how the standing of the U.S. is in some ways is lower than it's ever been in over 20 years. That's a bad thing. We should be trying to attract more business here, attract that this is a good place to invest and do business. We should be making it clear that international trade is not just for large companies, multinational Fortune 500, but Small businesses can participate in that. And we also, we're going to need to reinvigorate the State Department, which can be a huge asset, as well as commerce, to helping businesses, supporting businesses, large and small, in selling overseas. Because when we sell overseas, we create more jobs at home. And the next two, three years, we're going to have to create a lot more jobs as a result of this pandemic. Fred, I really appreciate the way you make this. And I don't want to use the word simplistic, but it's so easy to follow. We see a world with ongoing trade disputes and what seems to be these challenges to multilateral organizations such as the WTO, mistrust of corporations and this concern of globalism. And again, going back to what you said, this is all going on in this context and we have a global pandemic. What kind of advice would you give as we think about trade going forward along the lines of what you were talking about? Well, I don't want to be negative, but I think it's going to be a little ugly for a while. I think that the resurgence of nationalism, not just in our country, in China, in many other countries, is not going to be good for trading and globalism. And suspicion of foreigners, suspicion of things that are not of our country. We have a heavy dosage of that right now in our country. And so there's got to be a lot of healing and building of trust again and building of trust that, as you said, that companies are doing the right thing and are, have a sense of transparency. The government 
is actually working for people and looking out for their best interest. And the other thing I would say is, as hard as it's going to be, but this global pandemic is one good example. The devastating fires we've had in California is another one in terms of climate change. We are not going to be able to solve these problems all by ourselves. And so we're going to have to find ways to find common ground and work with other people and other countries to solve those things. And trade is a really good way of doing that because when companies work together, build things together, they build relationships and they build a sense of trust. So, but I think it's, we've done a lot of tearing down in the last few years. It's going to take a number of years to put it back together. Fred, where do you see the opportunities in the next few years around trade, trade policy, trading for businesses? I think, listen, Robert, you and I know each other from my time at the Export-Import Bank. And so I was on the export side. But I think there are always enormous opportunities. This pandemic has exposed a number of cracks and flaws, not just in our infrastructure, but in global infrastructure, global connectedness. The United States provides both goods and services, whether it has to do with power, transportation, water treatment, building of hospitals. These are the kinds of things that refinanced U.S. companies overseas. So I think those opportunities are going to be ever greater. Plugging my old agency, a number of developing countries are going to see great needs to really build up their healthcare systems. We can do that. And the Export Input Bank, which I chaired, as you mentioned, for eight years, is in a good position to provide that kind of financing so that it'll put Americans to work and will also improve the health systems, power, and resiliency around the world. Places like Sub-Saharan Africa have always been underinvested in by U.S. companies, as well as much of South Asia. So I think there are a number of opportunities in places like that. We have a big election coming up in the U.S., which I we do. trust you've noticed. <laughs> uh, and we're recording this in advance of that election. So let me ask you a couple of scenarios. You've really commented on the fact that trade in the current administration and the current discussions have really moved from an issue on T4 in the newspapers to page A1, top of the fold. People are really talking about and hyper aware of trade, probably with a lot of myths around it, but it's front and center. So if President Trump is reelected, how do you see that outcome in terms of what the U.S. will be doing on trade? And conversely, if Vice President Biden, in whose administration you serve, if he is elected and there's a change in government, how do you see his approach likely turning out in the area of international trade? Well, if President Trump is reelected, I think we're going to see a continuing and I would say an acceleration of, they like to call it decoupling. I think that they erroneously see a Cold War with China. I think that's a false and fraudulent analogy. And you have with President Trump and as part of the chorus, uh, Peter Navarro, Robert Lighthizer, who heads your former agency, who very much feel that the rest of the world is taking advantage of us, that somehow we are victims and we're crouching and need Donald Trump's protection because we're being taken advantage of. So I think that is just going to accelerate and our split with our allies will only get worse. So from a trading point of view, I think that creates a bad environment for businesses that want to export, invest, and become more global citizens. 
if that happens. If Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris are elected on November 3rd, it's going to take a slow rebuilding. I think that Vice President Biden is clear that it takes a firm stand, but allies are one of our unique assets as an American country. There was a reporting story years ago with a senior Chinese minister, a journalist told me this story, and he remarked to Hank Paulson, I believe it was, that you have all the good allies. Essentially, unsaid was, we have North Korea and Cambodia. So we have these, one of our greatest assets are all these allies. Vice President Biden, Kamala Harris recognized that, and we need to use them, one, to enhance American trade and influence around the world, and two, importantly, with our allies, we can do a better job of making sure China operates in a fair and equitable way. China is much better at picking everybody off when we're all divided, and that suits their interests very well. So I think that would be very different under President Biden. Thank you. Nicole, I'll turn it back to you. Great. Thank you so much. Fred, this has been wonderful, and I'd like to close with a personal question, if that's okay. It's one we ask friends and authors like yourself. What books are you currently reading? Well, one of the advantages, if I can use that word advisedly, <laughs> of this pause in our daily routines has been I've read more books this year. I would say one by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a few years old, The Warmth of Other Suns, tracing the migration of African-Americans from the South northward in the 20th century. I almost have a chill talking about it. It was such a moving book, tracing three different families and their migration out of the South gave me really such a profound, deeper understanding of how we all have contributed to this racial injustice over the last several centuries. And the other book that maybe relates a little bit to some of this conversation is George Packer's book, Our Man, about Richard Holbrook. That was also a great read. So I feel, as I said, one of the, I'm reading less briefing books and some out of government. I have a chance to read a couple of books and even a novel or two. Well, they both sound like wonderful books in their own right, and I will put those on my list right after I read Create is Not a Four-Letter Word. So we, we thank you very much. Order. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, always. We thank you so much, Fred, for you joining us today. It was really a great conversation. Robert and I look forward to continuing to follow your work and your wonderful perspectives. And for our listeners, you can access information about Fred Hochberg and his book at the link in our show notes or at kroll.com backslash Global Trade Talks. We invite our listeners to subscribe to our Global Trade Talks series and join us as we welcome guests who share insights on key global issues in business, law, and public policy. Global Trade Talks is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash global trade talks. <laughs>